For as long as humans have been farming, farmers have had a relationship with the land that is intimate, mutually giving, and high stakes. Farmers learn about their land by looking at it and comparing it to other seasons. They can touch the soil and trees and fruit and mud and learn about its health. The sounds of the wind through the grasses and the birdsong tell their own stories. And even tasting, physically tasting the soil and water tells an attuned farmer something about its makeup. Ever since humans started farming, families and small communities have literally had their lives dependent on the crops that were grown. A failed season could be financial ruin and perhaps starvation and death. Similarly, a successful season meant more for everyone, paid off debts, and the joy that comes with physical security. All of this human meaning coming from a farmer's relationship with the land. During Prohibition, cannabis farmers had to know their land and pray about the weather too, and they had the added threat of law enforcement and helicopters. Trying to provide for my family by growing fields of cannabis while avoiding the DEA and National Guard overhead has got to be one of the most stressful jobs I can imagine. But at its heart, farming always comes back to the land and the weather. That essential relationship, that give and take, demands an openness from the farmer and a willingness to do what the land wants to keep her in balance and fertile. As cannabis enthusiasts, we can all benefit from remembering that cannabis is flowers, and that flowers come from the earth, and these flowers connect us to the efforts of farmers everywhere. And so we are all connected to their land, their homes, their families, and our shared earth. If you want to learn about cannabis health, business, and technique efficiently and with good cheer, I encourage you to subscribe to our newsletter. We'll send you new podcast episodes as they come out, delivered right to your inbox, along with commentary on a couple of the most important news items from the week and videos too. Don't rely on social media to let you know when a new episode is published. Sign up for the updates to make sure you don't miss an episode. Also, we're giving away very cool prizes to folks who are signed up to receive the newsletter. There's nothing else you need to do to win except receive that newsletter. This month, we're giving away two prize packs, each with a bag of Happy Endings Root Stimulation Tea Mix and Ocean Bounty Flowering Tea Mix from our friends at Green Bicycles. Kevin Jodry turned me on to this about five years ago, and I've been using it ever since. So go to shapingfire.com to sign up for the newsletter to be entered into this month's and all future newsletter prize drawings. You are listening to Shaping Fire, and I'm your host, Shango Los. Today, my guest is Nicholas Mahmood. Nicholas Mahmood and Elizabeth Luca Mahmood founded Green Source Gardens in Wolf Creek, Oregon, where they produce cannabis and food using regenerative farming practices. They were awarded the prestigious Regenerative Cannabis Farming Award at both the Emerald Cup in California and at the Cultivation Classic in Oregon. Green Source Gardens is a Dragonfly Earth Medicine DEM certified regenerative farm. They are also certified by Kind, Sun and Moon, and are a watershed conscious property. Nick is a highly sought after speaker, but he's hard to get because they live so far up the mountain and are nearly off grid. That said, Nick has spoken at Emerald Cup and a few other key events. 
Today we're going to discuss suggestions for putting your garden to rest in the fall, opportunities for improvement over the winter, and some best practices for waking your farm up in the spring. Welcome to the show, Nicholas. Hey, Shango. It's great to be here. Awesome, man. Thank you. I've really wanted to do this show with you ever since we recorded that great video um, at your farm, and I'm so grateful for finally getting to it. So thanks for making time in your busy schedule, especially uh, you know so early in the morning today. So let's get right into it. You know, At the end of the season, so many of us just want to walk away from the garden, right? Because we're tired and we're ready for a break. But fall is a really great opportunity for gains in a garden that's integrated with the nature that's surrounding it. So so let's start there in the fall. So I'm sure as you are harvesting plants, you're already planning what you're going to do as soon as everything is hung. So will you walk us along your process for putting the garden to rest for the fall? Sure. Um, first of all, it starts it starts basically in August. And, and so it actually begins before harvest. Um, and it, it's kind of a preparation for harvest is kind of uh it it's preparing for harvest is the beginning process of getting ready for the winter and the way that um i look at this is is when people are when we're out harvesting uh these plants we're stepping on the soil around the plants a lot so the first step that i'm taking that we're taking is is mulching around the plants really heavy with wood chips and there's a reason that we use wood chips um wood chips are kind of the most uh uh resilient and soil protector if you will um so when you actually put wood chips on the ground and then walk on those wood chips it prevents compaction and it also prepares the the surface of the of the ground for the winter rains and, and the ability to infiltrate water into the ground, as well as once it starts to get wet again, um, all the microbiology that's that's kind of maybe hidden down in the soil a little deeper in the late summer because of the dryness um, is able to work its way back up to the surface and beyond into the new mulch layer. Um, so, so, you know, really, if you want to have your garden really well prepared for winter, you start in the summer. And, you know, I can't, I, I can't emphasize enough that people start their, they, they think about their care preemptively before the season everybody wants to get away or like finish a season and is it's really you know like a big time of the year to want to stop doing anything because of all the the work that's gone into the season but really in order to uh, uh really do a good job you have to think about uh, the soil. You have to think about the weather that's coming. You have to think about the weather that exists now. You have to think about what happened all summer. Um, and and one thing that happens in the summer in a garden space that's irrigated is a lot of microbiology eats a lot of the carbon mulch that is available. And therefore, once that mulch is broken down into more of a humus, it becomes more capable of being compacted. And that's that's exactly why you know you really want to like put all that heavy wood chip around your plants before your workers are out there harvesting on those plants so that their footsteps aren't actually doing damage to the uh, to the soil layer below so yeah, that's that's the beginning process. When you are placing the wood chips, um, how 
Um, how, how far out from the plants are you going? Are you are you putting them more at the base because you're just trying to protect the the eight or ten inches on either side of the stalk, or are you all like, no, 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 no? We heavily do the entire bed so that um, so that it's more liberally protected, or do you go so far as to wood chip the aisleways between the plants too? Because I know you see your soil as being kind of one one comprehensive organism instead of like discrete parts. Yeah, it's it's a it's all dependent on the resources availability. How many wood chips do you have? How much mulch availability do you have? Um, and if you can do the whole bed and the pathway, that's ideal. And the more you can put on that time of the year, the better. Because what you're looking at doing is, um, you know, the the benefits of the wood chips at that time of the year are, are numerous. And, and preparing for, we have to think about things in terms of climate. So I'm in southern Oregon. And I'm thinking about the winter and and the winter in southern Oregon is the wet season and therefore there's all this leaching that goes on in that season. It's different where it freezes really hard and the ground's frozen all all winter. Um, so a, a lot less happens in that scenario but really the soil wakes up in southern Oregon in the fall when it starts to get wet again and all that microbiology has that moisture to be able to, um, to, to start to do its work again and so um, you know the wood chips are a preparation to support the fungal growth for the winter time and the fungal component and the hyphae and and the mycelium that uh, basically covers the the soil when you wood chip heavy is the protectant layer that prevents leaching so the fungal uh, the the way the fungus works is the mycelium encases all the organic matter, and now when you run water through it, the water doesn't carry anything away. The the fungal component actually acts as a filter, and so this is a way to keep the water clean and to prevent leaching from occurring. It's not the only way to do it, and if you have access to a lot of wood chips, I live in a forested area where there needs to be massive amounts of thinning going on anyway, so we generally are able to find access to good wood chips. Um, but in a case where, uh, say, your fertility is already really on point, you're in some agricultural lands, you know, you might choose the direction of just straight cover crop in the winter where the, the root systems are acting as the nutrient uptake and the protector of the soil. But in, in the case where I, I am, uh, our fertility is not very high. We, we live in the mountains and on gravelly serpentine soil. So, you know, what I'm really doing still, even at year five, is, is I want to promote the development of humus and 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 continue building fertility uh, for years before I get to the point where, say, I was down in the the valley bottom and all the silts get carried down, um, and and there it's an endless depth of of really nutrient rich soil. So, you know, in my case, I am wood chipping heavy for many different reasons, but uh, a lot of it is prevention of compaction and feeding the soil life, and particularly the fungus. We're actually aiming to acidify uh, a little bit. We were looking at acidic, more acidic in the winter and, and more bacterial in the, in the summer. But, you know, ultimately there's always both the bacteria uh, or the, 
alkaline and, and, and acidic, I guess, the two different things. And the way that we can think about that is fungal, uh, fungally dominant soils support more acidic soils and bacterially dominated soils support more alkaline soils. So we're trying to support a more acidic soil in the winter and then we balance that in the spring with the manures uh, uh, for the for the growth of the crop um right on so um my question about wood chips would be you know when i was at your property um your property has got more wood chips than i've ever seen on a cannabis farm actually on any farm period and i know that most of your stuff comes from your the forest around you but you were clear earlier when you said you know if you have access to good chips so you know in in some ways you're probably like a chip guru you know so so teach us a little bit about wood chips and for and sourcing and choosing the kind of chip we're going to use well the good thing about wood chips is they're generally coming from tree companies who are doing either road work or homework and you know people don't spray their trees very often so oftentimes wood chips are actually pretty clean in comparison to other things if you're working with people who are doing a bunch of landscaping stuff on really uh you know uh managed landscapes you then you have to be concerned about what people are are managing the landscapes with in terms of chemicals and stuff but you know in the case of gathering from tree services who are are working on roads and stuff those wood chips are great um and i highly recommend people search out their tree companies and utilize those wood chips that way because otherwise they're oftentimes just being not uh not used well they're they're being taken away from the site in which they grew and they're being dumped in a place and all heaped together and it's just not an efficient way to maximize our carbon so you know there's a lot of energy and 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 gasoline and all the stuff that goes into even chipping wood so you know i personally i'm not even chipping that much wood off of my own land i'm just accessing the wood chips that's already been processed in in these or these systems that exist that maybe aren't the most efficient in terms of gas but they exist and so we have to intercept these these uh these carbon streams that are being wasted and and put them back into good use and and you know honestly wood chips are probably the cheapest most valuable input that you could ever put on your garden so in terms of what a good wood chip is like everybody's always concerned i get the question a lot about what type of wood chips do you want to use and what type of trees are okay to use and you know my my general answer for most of these things is they're all good um but they're best when they're they're diverse so you know people are like well the evergreen trees are too acidic and and all this and there's some truth to that there's different chemistry in different trees while they're living but as they're dying and being consumed back into the soil they lose that chemistry and so even the things that are say aliopathic uh, walnut trees and pecans or these kinds of things that prevent things from growing doesn't mean that the wood chip breakdown is going to prevent things from growing as well so just understand like old if you've got wood chips that have been sitting around for a couple of years, it doesn't matter what kind they are. Um, you know, there is some truth to redwoods prevent fungal growth, cedar prevents some fungal growth. 
that's true. And if all you have is all redwood chips or all cedar chips, you might just put those on the pathway and know that they're going to take a little longer uh, and not support a certain component of your soil as much as say like an oak tree or a maple tree or an alder tree uh deciduous trees in general um, might support a quicker uh, saprophytic fungal breakdown process um so diversity is always the aim you're always looking for you don't want the best you know if you wanted the best you would eliminate all the rest and then you would be down this path of monoculture and that's the issue that i think this culture faces is we're always trying to get the most efficient best thing that we can because we care so much about having the best and and that kind of mentality is is the one that takes you down this narrow path of problems um because now you're eliminating the diversity in the system and you're subjecting yourself to uh, a really one-sided imbalanced scenario so a bunch uh, (laughs) diverse it's all it's all good it's all carbon it doesn't even have to be from trees you know everything breaks down the same everything there, there's no carbon that's better than other carbon, essentially. Right on. You know, I really appreciate you, Nick. You know, this every time I hear you speak, whether it was the video we did together or or seeing you at Emerald Cup, you have this wonderful way of taking what goes on on your garden and tying it seamlessly into the systems around you, right? Like you took that question and next thing you know, you're talking about uh, carbon streams that happen off of your property and how to maximize them for the good of the earth. And, you know, and then suddenly you're like all the way back over here talking about, uh, you know, different seasonal soil types all while talking about what makes a good wood chip and and i appreciate that that holistic um the headspace of yours so 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 when i originally asked the question i said you know what are you doing starting at harvest and you're like well actually shango we start pre-harvest so our um and then we talked a lot about wood chipping so is there anything else that you do pre-harvest that we want to make sure that we catch on before we go to the next time block which will be after harvest sure uh pre-harvest you know it's a good time to gather up the potatoes that are growing under and around um and just to kind of either to, to store them for eating and or to just break up the clumps of in groups of potatoes and spread them out before the mulching. Uh, so you can kind of replant your potatoes at that time by, by harvesting and spreading them out if you want them to grow big again. If you leave... Uh, most tubers and stuff, they, they form multiple, many uh, at the base of, of where they grow. And if you don't harvest and spread them out, they, they end up becoming smaller and smaller uh, as the years progress. You may have many more, but they're just the, the production is, is sacrificed a little bit and they get overcrowded, like most things. And, and you, don't, you just don't see those giant big potatoes uh, if you don't take the time to uh, take those potatoes out and and spread them about. So, you know, if you're going to be spending a bunch of time pushing a bunch of wood chips onto the scene, pull your potatoes out first, spread them out, and mulch over those potatoes. I don't ever do anything very systematically. Like, I'm not making a line of potatoes, or I'm literally pulling them out, pulling the ones I want to eat, and then the ones that are scarred or eaten by bugs to some degree. I'm just tossing into the area i'm not really even trying to place them anywhere in particular so spreading some of the the food crops out the tubers um 
that that might be one thing uh that's really helpful right before the mulching applications uh you know uh so yeah you know it's a good time to throw cover crop seed on the areas that aren't going to be as mulched uh so if you if you have some extra seed laying around or you know it's also a good time to look at what has seeded itself in the garden and if you want that stuff to grow in different places to cut that down and just lay it where you want it to grow and 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 that'll kind of increase your desired uh cover crop potential um so right on so so i know you to be a huge fan of having potatoes under your plants for a couple reasons um for folks who haven't heard you talk about this why don't you hit on that briefly before we move on because um it's interesting and it's something kind of unique to your farm yeah well I mean, potatoes have fed the world for so long that it's it's a worthy crop to pay attention to. Uh, it's also a tuber, and tubers are doing great things for the soil. They're not feeding just us. I mean, because they feed us these these important starches, and they give us a a bank of food um, that you can basically source all year long. Um, it's also feeding the soil life. So, leaving a bunch of potatoes in the ground, it, it explodes your arthropod populations. I've I can't tell you how many times I pulled up a, a rotten potato that was just heaving with with millipede life, like an explosion of, of certain, you know, uh, biology that, that's important. And so I look at it at the potato and it's not just potatoes uh tubers in general but potatoes just generally seem to do really good in our our growing scenarios um i i can't help but think that's that's aiding and helping the cannabis as well so potatoes have been one of our favorite companion plants with cannabis um since uh, for for many many years once i started honing in on that i i just understanding potatoes is is an important piece of of having a secure food system i guess you know it's like when it comes down to it i eat more potatoes out of the garden than any other crop so uh, i consider it very valuable and a way to make sure that i'm gonna get through the winter if all the stores close down kind of thing yeah, it's a real dual-use thing, isn't it, right? You you can eat them whenever you want, but but also they're while being respectful to the food, they're also not precious, right? You can also put them, you know, in the ground to rot as well, and they are doing an entirely different precious job not being food at that point because they're being food for all of the complex um um, living things that are in your garden. And one of the things that I like about potatoes too is that it is nutrition that's accessible to multiple levels of magnitude in your bed. Um, it doesn't just feed one level of magnitude. Um, as, when it's whole, it feeds one group of insects. And then as it breaks down, it feeds all the way down to the microbiology. And um, and, and it's got so much nutritional value, it just seems to make the entire bed more abundant. Yeah, I mean, it's it's an amazing thing. And in the spring, when you leave the potatoes in or they've overwintered and they start growing super early and they freeze back and then they grow multi-top, they become an amazing cover crop uh, where I'm actually having to destroy a lot of the vines when I'm transplanting things in because there's just potatoes everywhere. Um, and that's a good situation to be in, you know, because, you know, I don't have to worry about how many potatoes I'm going to grow. I've got thousands of pounds in the ground. I don't ever harvest them all. But in the spring, I've got this beautiful beautiful uh cover crop uh vining green and potatoes three four feet 
tall and five feet bush-like by June. So I can harvest potatoes from June until uh, through the winter. So it's really a I, – I can't – I can't recommend potatoes enough. I mean they're the best uh, – they're the best food crop that I know of um, in terms of – they don't eat that much in the soil. You know, they're they're amazing. It's interesting to me to hear you talk about potatoes as a cover crop. Because, you know, I grew up in Detroit. And, um, you know, I think of potatoes as something that's under the soil. But you're like, no, man. In the in By June, they have grown up out of the soil. And you've got these green tops. And they're producing all these other benefits that we normally, you know, just give to radishes. Yeah, exactly. And, and... Honestly, they're they're they cover the ground, and when you say cover crop, that's what you're looking for. It's something that is acting as a living mulch layer uh, that protects the soil and and the rhizosphere. So, you know, again, but the potatoes don't grow the same way. If you pull them all out and plant them individually, they're much they're just not as vigorous and not as bush and cover like. So you really have to like exercise this idea of planting way more than you want and leaving a bunch in and just watching the process naturalize and then intervening only when things start taking over. Um, and, and, you know, that's a lot of what I believe is that you want the things that come back easily and naturally without much work that serve a bunch of different roles in the garden. And ideally it's a, it's, it's, it's managing the overgrowth in a good garden versus trying to get stuff planted in. And, and you know, it's, it's really about it's being the, the space is being overwhelmed by life. And now you just have to make room in that overwhelmed space for your little plant that you want to grow as say a cash crop that we do like for cannabis. So I'm really in at this point when I'm transplanting in, I am making space in a very diverse and 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 strong living plant guild um and just am kind of just wrecking the plants in one area so i can get a plant into there um so it, it bodes well for transplanting and and it, it makes things a little more challenging for direct seeding so there are some pros and cons to most practices. Yeah, right on. So that brings us up to actual harvest, right? If that's all stuff you're doing before you're cutting your plants for the season, um, let's talk about your routines um, after the plants are hung. Okay. Let's start. Let's. So one of the most important things, and I think is neglected uh, most of the time, is that that time just after harvest is really the time that you need to be building uh, your potting soil for the next season. So we don't buy any soils. We don't buy amendments. We don't buy stuff to make our potting soils. Uh, we we use everything from on site and and and. F- and wood chips. I mean, wood chips aren't always from on site, but uh, our manures are on site. Uh, my we we buy hay uh, to bring to the farm. So so there's a couple things that we are gathering off site. I don't want to like try and pretend we're 100% closed loop. I don't think anybody is right now. I think it's good to uh, be vulnerable and 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 share the processes that you know, our, our, our reality, which is we do have inputs for our, our potting soils, but it's wood chips and it's manure. And, and all the manure that we get is from our own animals. And, and so, um, we basically, you want to get that into a space that's going to be covered. 
and and you want to layer that in a way and to a size where it's not going to heat up too much. I think everybody's uh, been brainwashed in in this um, composting process to think that their compost has to get to 140 for a certain amount of time. And I think a lot of this stems from kind of the organic certification stuff where it's like if you're going to apply compost to your crops, it needs to be having stayed at 140 for this long but what people overlook in that scenario is that's only if you're adding that compost to the crop before or within 90 days of harvest but if you're not putting that you can put manure directly on your fields uh, and it's not an issue as long as you have 90 days of growth before that crop is harvested so what we want to do is prevent thermophilic composting we want to prevent the heating of these piles uh, to 140. I aim for uh, a range from 80 to 100, and I try never to get up that much more above 100. Um, and the reason for that is that is this t- that is the temperatures in which microbiology is most active. And really, I'm looking for as much microbiological breakdown while maintaining and retaining all the nutrients of the stuff being processed so cold composting actually puts and keeps the carbon in the ground hot composting you lose your nutrients to the atmosphere you start to put the carbon back in the air this is what we're not trying to do as say this term regenerative that seeks to put more carbon in the ground than it takes out um so so the potting soil is is done in our hoop houses, which were previously had grown uh, plants in, and I do a lot of breeding in the hoop houses there. Um, but those all get cut down, and then everything comes down, and I build this this what looks like a berm inside of my hoop houses, and those are the berms that I manage through the winter to biologically break down and become stable, well-broken-down humus that is the potting soil for the, sp- for the springtime. Um, and that it's important for that to be covered by something. You don't want the rains and the weather to be working on that pile because you want to be adding the moisture and reducing the amount of leaching and making sure that that process is happening uh, in the right way so that in the springtime you have a really good uh, medium for sprouting seeds without running into a lot of say damping off and 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 issues that come with uh, things that are less processed um, having more fungal stuff going on and damping off is one of those things that you have to pay attention to with your especially your sprouting soil mediums uh not so much transplanting once the plant's a little bit older it can take some of that stuff a little better but um if if you're not trying to uh create compost piles that are uh gonna cook and you are actually more relying on Time over the course of the winter for the manure to age and for the compost to increase in microbe life, um, I would think that your your thoughts about the inputs would be different too if you're not trying to get to 140. So um, uh, I, I would just guess that you're using everything that you find on the farm and just creating lasagna, but, but maybe talk a little bit about um, what these piles consist of other than the manure that you you've already hit on okay um 
First and foremost, whenever you're making a compost pile, really that bottom layer should be the fattest, uh, chunkiest stuff you've got. So wood chips is always a great base layer. But if you've got a bunch of branches um, that are smaller twig-like branches, that's a good thing too. Basically what that does is it creates this this sponge for the more nutrient-rich that because I do do the, like the lasagna layer just because it's kind of like I can manage the manures, the wood chips, the forest matter, um, and, and put them in the right places. And, and anytime you're creating or building soil of any sort, this isn't just about compost even though everything is getting composted um but just in general you want to build a bed you want to you know you want to do things where you're maximizing all the potential of the things that you're putting there you want your biggest uh most lignin rich uh source of carbon at the bottom and you want rich nutrient uh dense stuff that's going to soak that carbon because that carbon wants to suck all that in that carbon wants to hold all those nutrients and you know when people talk about wood chips tying up nitrogen or saying it makes the nitrogen not available there's this there's some truth to that but we have to look at the benefits of that that when the wood chip pulls that energy into it now you have a much better food source for the biology because there's not just what the wood chip was but now it's this nutrient rich tea that has naturally infused itself into that so when the fungus grows it actually grows uh better so you know you start with your wood chips on the bottom and then a layer of manure uh, a layer of forest leaves. Uh, I go to the most diverse areas, usually the gulches in my area where the horsetail and the, the, the big leaf maples and the alder and, and the oak um, are all kind of close together. So when I gather the leaves, um, I'm getting a diverse uh, mix of forest matter. And, and really that's you know, that's what you want is that diversity. I, I don't highly recommend people go out and just start hacking away into the forest soil and start bringing that because unless you're bringing something to add to that, it's kind of just this taking from a place and it's actually maybe not that helpful to the place. So, you know, when gathering materials from the forest, you want to look at where materials gather the most easily and are deposited with the, the water or they fall and the wind blows them into this area. And you want to be taking from these uh, basically forest matter deposits that naturally occur. And that way, you know, it's going to replenish in that spot over and over. And it's not necessarily you going out and finding the best forest soil that you can and, and starting to dig into the soil. I, I'm really just kind of gently raking as much leaf matter And oftentimes my forest matter that goes into my potting soil is me cleaning up our access roads where all the leaves and pine needles and and that kind of stuff um, are. And I need to clean that because we need to be able to get up those roads in the winter to get to the shop. So really, you know, it's it's kind of a great system in, in that, you know, we're keeping the roads uh, able to be used there, but we're also getting all that energy that would naturally just turn into muck on the roads into uh, a potting soil so um, so you've got your your woody uh, carbon 
carbonaceous layer you've got a layer of manure uh to soak into that and then you've got a layer of these forest leaves and then you might wood chip manure but you don't the biggest piece of keeping things from getting too hot is how big of a heap you make you know the bigger the heap with the same materials added will get to 140 but i'm keeping this in a long smaller heap and i'm with a temperature gauge, just kind of watching how things, um, how the temperatures increase and rise. And, and if it starts to get too hot, I'm, I'm kind of opening it up and spreading it out just a little bit to prevent that from getting as, as hot. So, you know, the more you heat things up, uh, generally the hotter they get. And quantity is, is oftentimes the, uh, the, the factor that, kind of gauges what the temperature is going to be at so you know if I, I could make the same pile and if i added three times as much i might be thermophilic composting um but you know uh, the other great thing about doing this in in my hoop houses is the hoop houses serve as the nursery and so when i'm filling pots to do nursery work it's always from the ground it's just from right where i'm standing and so it's really efficient from a working standpoint i'm not moving soil very far all the work has been done in the fall and now i just have my system dialed there um and and i have potting soil uh to scrape up off the ground anywhere um, so it's real basic. It's not that complicated. I'm not putting any kind of like intensive uh, uh, inputs outside of the manure um, to add nutrients. You know, if I know the soil is naturally low in calcium, I might try to shoot for more oak leaves uh, because I know that oak is a, a calcium um, accumulator. So so there's a lot of factors. There's a lot of thought processes. There's no right way. There's no wrong way. Uh, there's just ways. And and the way that I do it is is I, I spend a lot of time thinking about it, and I and I just do what makes the most sense. And and you know I don't need to. Nobody needs. I don't. I don't mean for it to sound like this is how you have to do it it's just that there are some things to consider like you don't want to lose everything to the atmosphere because that's truly what we're trying to prevent and you get a much more stable end result when your uh, biology has been supported the thermophilic composting supports pasteurization it, it it heats up to a point where it kills everything that's what people mostly want because they want to be killing the weed seeds or the seeds that they don't want but you know, I embrace uh, all those all those components as a part of the living system, and I'm not trying to kill uh, and pasteurize seeds, and I don't worry about uh, pathogens in that scenario as long as the biology is strong enough to have done the work for a long enough period of time. Um, I, I don't I don't run into um, a whole lot of pathogen problems, especially as the years roll by and the soil building has occurred in the same place over and over. Um, right on. That's a great explanation, Nick. I especially like your idea that this is not the way. There are many ways. And when when you talk about it, you can hear the reasoning behind what you're doing. So farmers who are listening to this anywhere on the planet can go, oh, okay, I understand how he's thinking about it. And for me and the the plants and inputs that I've got where I have, where I am, and the types of soil 
I have, I can go through these same sorts of thought processes and make a regenerative solution that works locally for me. Now, before we go on to um, uh, the the rest of your your after harvest uh, process and move into winter, let's go ahead and take our first short break. You are listening to Shaping Fire, and my guest today is regenerative farmer Nicholas Mahmood of Green Source Farm. As cannabis regulations become more demanding and consumers become more educated, it is increasingly important to avoid the use of chemical pesticides when cultivating cannabis. Beneficial insects have been used for decades by the greenhouse vegetable and ornamental plant industry, and today many cannabis cultivators are moving from sprays and chemicals to beneficial insects. Copert Biological Systems has the beneficial insects, mites, and nematodes, microbials, sticky cards, and air distribution units you need to partner with nature to defend your garden. Whether you manage acres of canopy or have a simple grow tent in your home, Copert is ready to help answer your questions and help you transition away from chemical sprays towards clean and natural solutions. Since 1967, Copert has assisted growers in identifying pests and devising reliable solutions while providing healthy insects and mites that will protect your yield. Since the 1990s, Copert has been a leader in cannabis pest and disease control worldwide and have highly trained consultants to assist you in Canada and the U.S. from coast to coast. No matter where you live, Copert Biological Systems can help. Visit copert.com, choose your country, and get detailed information. That's copert, K-O-P-P-E-R-T.com. For the most up-to-date cannabis-related biological control information, you can also check out their Instagram, at Copert Canada. You know getting away from pesticides is good for health and good for business, and Copert is ready to help. Visit copert.com today. Oxygen is an essential plant nutrient, and keeping sufficient dissolved oxygen in the root zone is a challenge. Gaia's brand of ultra-fine nanobubble systems will help your garden thrive in ways you may not have considered. No matter if you grow in soil, hydroponics, or aquaponics, Gaia's ultra-fine nanobubble systems will increase your dissolved oxygen and increase your yield. Often, the first sign of inadequate oxygen supply to the roots is wilting of the plant under warm conditions and high light levels. Insufficient oxygen results in an accumulation of toxins and an insufficient amount of water and mineral absorption. If oxygen starvation continues, mineral deficiencies will begin to show, roots die back, and plants will become stunted. Healthy roots supplied with sufficient oxygen are able to absorb nutrient ions selectively from the surrounding solution as required. In studies, this has shown a 30% increase in plant growth. Not only do ultra-fine oxygen bubbles allow your plants to thrive, but they will keep your drip lines and irrigation pipes and plumbing clean too, because algae, pythium, and other invasive species only survive in low oxygen environments. And the Gaia system only costs about $2 per day to run. Gaia Ultrafine Oxygen Nanobubblers are also great for making compost teas and wildcrafted nutrient teas. The smaller bubbles of truly dissolved oxygen allow more microbes to reproduce faster. Go to Gaia's website at h205.com to learn more about using dissolved oxygen and how to purchase this simple yet amazing technology. That's h205.com. With the National Hemp Program in flux due to stringent THC testing requirements, brothers Seth and Eric Crawford continue to release seeds to hemp farmers that will be legal, no matter how you grow them or when you test them. 
These new varieties from Oregon CBD seeds have substantial amounts of CBDV, CBGV, CBCV, and THCV while always staying below the 0.3% THC limit and guaranteeing compliant crops for farmers every time. Also, these new varieties cannot be pollinated by your neighbor's uncontrolled pollen or a rogue male in your own crop either. Oregon CBD seeds are non-GMO certified too. Oregon CBD Seeds was founded and funded in 2015 by Seth and Eric, maxing out their personal credit cards without outside investment. They continue to refuse outside investment that would change their company culture. Oregon CBD grows tons of fresh food on their research farms for local food banks, literally tons of food. They also give away tens of thousands of pounds of R&D flour to patients. As their company began to succeed, Seth and Eric started donating money to the cannabis medicine and hemp fiber cause too by giving millions of dollars to Oregon State University in order to establish the world's leading cannabis genomics research program. And they treat their employees right. Oregon CBD pays for full health and dental coverage for their employees, a 401k program, and their minimum starting wage is 20 bucks an hour. Plus, everyone shares food from the farms. Seth has been on Shaping Fire a few times to talk about novel cannabinoids. You can check out episodes 25 and 37 on CBD cultivars in the hemp market, episode 66 on triploid cannabis genetics, and the very first Shaping Fire Live, episode 47, with Seth and soil expert Jeff Lowenfels talking about autoflowers. If you are a hemp farmer and you want to grow reliable seeds that are sure to thrive and pass testing, check out OregonCBDSeeds.com to learn more about buying seeds for the 2021 season. That's OregonCBDSeeds.com. Welcome back. You are listening to Shaping Fire. I'm your host, Shango Lose, and our guest this week is regenerative farmer Nicholas Mahmood of Green Source Gardens. So before the break, we were talking about um, the late fall after harvest preparations that you do. And we've talked a lot about um, wood chips influencing the quality of the soil, um, the building of the type of compost pile that you most like to prepare your potting soil for the following season. Um, is there anything else that we want to talk about, um, about uh, putting the property to bed before we move into, you know, winter and forest management and stuff? Well, you know, I think it's just really important that the soils all get covered, uh, that you're thinking about your your tubers and stuff uh, spreading out. You're thinking about what you want it to look like the next season, and you're just kind of managing whatever perennial uh, uh, stuff you got going on. Um, and that, that varies between the different plants that are uh, perennialized in the system. So, you know, those are those are the important things. So, yeah, we can move we can move forward. All right, great. So, so at this point, we're getting later in the season. We're we're into uh, November, December, depending on where we are. Um, you know, the the rains have begun. Maybe the the te- the temperatures have dropped um, significantly. Heck, if you're at high enough elevation, you might be thinking about snow at this point. And you know, in in my head, I'm usually thinking, all right, this is the time that you're going to be you know in the house in front of your fireplace with your family and some of your celebratory flower from the summer. Um, and yeah. Yet, um, you are outside uh, taking care of things on your property that, you know, really are best done when you don't have more pressing things to do. So, uh, so take us through what you're doing during, doing during the winter. All right. Um, well, 
You know, one thing, I like to think about a big picture ecological perspective, and I'm always, I'm not always uh, 100% focused on the garden, but I'm I'm paying attention to the surrounding landscape and, and trying to do my best as a steward to uh, maximize what I can do in the right seasons. In the wintertime, as the, the moisture comes back into the system and the weather starts to permit the ability to... Uh, start working on force management and and you know for us we rely on wood for heat so um you know in the winter based on the we have an 80 acre farm i only we only grow on a small portion of that and we're we're just in this really overgrown this is common in in most of managed forests in the west is that these these management practices have been seeking uh production uh, first, our forest lands are actually farms for trees, and and in that process, we've overlooked the potential ecological uh, health of the system to maximize profit for logging companies and 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 just for the land's sake, uh, and 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 completely um, just are doing terrible things in the long run for uh, the potential of the place. And so the winter time for me um, has been a lot about looking at thinning the land that are overgrown and, and, and maintaining the larger trees on the landscape and, and cutting down the overgrown understory of, of trees that are just choking everything out and becoming a serious fire hazard. Um, and so uh, wintertime is a thinning time, and, and that's, that's a big part of the work that is going to go down is once the fire season is over, I'm thinking about the next fire season and, and I'm thinking about how to get the landscape into a position where if a fire did roll through, it wouldn't be detrimental, but rather maybe even a little bit beneficial. And so truthfully, uh, the forests have been managed by indigenous peoples in the West for, uh, longer than we can understand and to think that it's uh that there's this uh you have to leave nature alone in order for nature to be at its peak but the truth is is humans are a part of nature and so we're trying to you know understand our relationship to ecology as a species of participating members in the ecology and you know so when we look to what do we do we should be uh, sourcing the indigenous practices of the area to best uh, promote Promote um, the ecological health of the forest. Uh, we are a participating steward um, of the land, and so uh, what that looks like is is you know managing overgrowth. And really, this is like there's um, there's some you know there's written things about everything, but there's this idea that there's this principle. Uh, I forget the 
full-on thing. But the gist of it is, is that there's a lot of things out there that, if left unchecked, will just take over, diminish diversity, and reduce the potential of the ecology. And it's humans that can come in and help manage that for the diversity. And when we think about health in a forest, we're thinking about um, we're thinking about layers uh, within the forest, and we're thinking about light penetration, and we're thinking about canopy, and we're thinking about um, fire breaks that uh, impede the ability for fires to be devastational. Um, and so we're really immature in our understanding, uh, even just us being uh, myself and my wife and landowners in general. Uh, we really we're at this time in in the world where the land hasn't been being cared for that well and the culture that we come from doesn't understand what care really looks like and so um in order to begin the process of healing that and and repairing some of the harm that's been done uh we really have to look at things from an ecological big picture perspective and and understand that you know a healthy forest is one that has big trees that are spaced apart with with a bunch of different brush growing underneath and grasses that can grow and light penetration that can promote the diversity and vines growing into the trees and enough space in between the trees for fire not to just wreak havoc so I'm I'm spending a lot of time, you know, um, I do, I'm starting the process of burning more just because the scenario is so intense. You know, I went through a process where I thought, well, we don't want to burn anything. We want to sequester that carbon into the ground. And that's, you know, that's, that's a great idea. But and the reality is um, the state of the forest and where they're at in this, the state of the danger of the fires is there's a lot of burning of brush and stuff that does need to be done. If you could change it all that'd be great but the truth is is we don't all have chippers and how much gas would it take to do that um and so you know thinking about a fire breaks and and working on your fire breaks and and what that also does is it increases the light penetration which is increases the potential ground growth um so uh you know, we like to thin spaces uh, strategically uh, surrounding the home, surrounding uh, our most valuable resources, and then uh, start the process of, of getting the ground prepared to be able to grow more than just, say, all cedar trees, um, and, and hopefully try to increase the diversity on the ground level as well as the canopy level. Um, and then introducing animals to that once that's been done uh, really helps. But we're in the early stages, you know. I, I, I really move slow in, in making these big decisions because I really understand that I come from a, a broken culture when it when we talk about stewardship. And so I try to just not be too hasty and think I have the answers right away. And, and I, I implement um, small scale and, and watch and observe. And, and then I ask myself as honestly and openly as I can, like, was that a good thing for the earth and this area? Or was that just me practicing something I thought was good based on my, uh, you know, my cultural brainwashing, I guess. Uh, so, you know, um, 
it's really important, I think, that we think about things and be really mindful and, and really have foundational principles of like, what are we trying to achieve before taking action into the landscape uh, and, and implementing our ideas on upon the land. And, you know, I always think about like the farm design shouldn't be designed by people it should be designed by the land that it's in and that people are just simply able to understand how the land is working and promote the healthiest potential of that space versus i want straight rows of this and i want my square block of this it's like nature doesn't work that way what we want to pay attention to is is how does the water move across the landscape what harm has been done previously how can we remediate some of that harm how can we increase subsurface return flow to the creeks and gulches how do we hold the moisture in the landscape and and that's what we want to be thinking about as we're doing these thinning projects because if we do say disturb the land in a way where we are going to bury some wood we want want to do that on contour where the water then infiltrates and with the wood gets soaked and it doesn't just stay on the surface and get dry but rather it turns into a fungal thing that's all duffy and is isn't a fire hazard so i don't burn everything but i also don't bury everything so it's it's there's a lot going on there's a lot of thinking going on too we do spend time around the fire i am inside as well and i am enjoying that flower so (laughs) so you know when we've talked about watersheds before and how the water moves across your land um you know you've talked to me about how you just go in and move a berm or or move a swale or you're you're physical about your relationship with the garden and you know so many times i i tour farms and 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 folks don't want to move they don't want to move the growing beds and and other things on their property because they feel attached to where they are and and your approach is always the the water flow changes from year to year on your property and so during the winter you often will reorganize the farm and where where your growing spaces are based on the how nature is presenting itself on your property this particular season. Um, Would you talk a little bit about your willingness to kind of mess with last year's garden and, and remake it into this year's garden, keeping in mind what nature is telling you it wants? Yeah. Yeah. um, This is a great, this is a great question and, and a great topic because, you know, so much in the, the regenerative realm and, and, and the, the better practices we talk about, no-till. And I think sometimes that, that – I use that term a lot in the past, um, no-till. And, and, and there's a great reason we, we glom on to that and why that is so important is because undisturbed – uh, communities that are allowed to mature become more mature and and are able to evolve into a more resilient system. Now, um, there's there's some there's some parts of it that are a little off too as I evolve in my thought processes about it. As a system becomes more mature and evolved, sometimes disturbance and that doesn't mean tilling, but I think about 
uh, disturbance can sometimes stimulate and and allow the diversity to recreate itself. And so I basically am looking at all the things I did wrong earlier uh, in in my time as a somebody who is claiming to practice stewardship. Um, I'm looking at where I didn't uh, say. Uh, form things in the way where the water was infiltrating at the best. Uh, and, and I go and I, I will disturb that space, um, and sometimes even with a machine, but uh, only that, – that takes a lot. It takes a lot for me to feel like I can get behind a machine and start working on a landscape and thinking I'm doing any good. Oftentimes, that's a that's – a, people make big mistakes on machines really quick, and that, that's hard to recoup. But as you start to get an eye for it and you start to see where maybe some of the places where the con- it wasn't fully on contour, you can remediate by uh, shifting things around and allowing the water to then become more uh, able to – return to the uh the water table subsurface versus uh seeing water draining off of something or taking you know we're always trying to create these uh sinks uh these places where the water sinks in and and you know understanding contour is really important for that and you know we did everything on our hillside by hand the first couple seasons and then after really getting to know the land a little more uh i we started to use a machine in there just to really help stimulate and promote that potential um so at at this point i i don't say you know, don't ever disturb anything. I say once your system has become healthy, a little disturbance here and there is actually a pretty good thing. It starts to uh, it, it resets some um, ecological activity, which which means that you're recreating some of the things that might not exist anymore. Therefore, you're creating that again in a system that's mature, and now the diversity is even greater. And really, we're seeking for that diversity. I want a place where I can grow, uh, I can have an annual crop amongst a perennial system. So, um, you know, I, yeah, I, I think, you know, in the beds this year, I've taken and doubled some of them up and made the berms even bigger. Uh, I know they'll be more productive, and I know I'll be able to sink more water in the winter. So um, any time you do go in and disturb things, there has to be a – you got to understand that when you do disturb land, you are – uh, breaking it down and and creating it to be more subject to to erosion and and so anytime you make a move in that direction you have to be prepared with either mulch or cover crop seed the timing has to be right you can't work in machines on wetland you have to be really mindful of how you go about your disturbance to minimize the potential negative impact that you can that you can certainly have without meaning to have. And I think a lot of people have a lot of negative impact trying to do good things, just doing them out of tune with how they should, they should be done from an ecological perspective. And, um, usually that's a, like the whole nine to five schedule. You can't work on a nine to five schedule and say, I'm going to block out this week to do machine work. And I'm going to, you know, take this time to do this work you have to be flexible with the climate and the cycles of the of the cosmos in order to be the most effective participant in it so you know i don't i don't i wait for dry periods um i i have a short window of work period i can actually put a machine on the hill without really screwing up 
up the hill and maybe losing uh, track on the excavator because of the mud, you know, so it's like you you have to be very mindful how we operate, especially on a bigger scale um, and, and our impact and just make sure that we're doing all the pre-planning and staging of materials um, to, to heal that space once we do disturb it. Because regardless of how mature and evolved the system is, how resilient it is, um, anytime we do make big disturbance in a space, we have to come in with a, a soft finishing touch that allows allows the reestablishment of the life that we want to continue to to be maximized so um so yeah right on so before we finish up um the winter cycle i'm curious if you are spending any time producing your own inputs like you know are you are you fermenting foliars or or producing any additives on your um on your property we're going to talk more about uh, manure in the next set but i'm talking about specifically like you know fermentations or nutrient teas or anything uh korean natural farm or you know do you do any of that kind of stuff during the winter and and how do you see those playing a role on your farm well i don't see them like from a conventional mindset of what you're, you're talking about like they like i don't practice any of that stuff um but i i see them playing a role in the systems i've created i see the fermenting going on but i don't actively separate the things that i want fermented so um really all this takes place in the rhizosphere and and the mulches that are applied are the actual uh fermenting uh, the teas that when the rain falls on these mulches they create teas the fermenting happens in the different microbiology and the different temperatures of the organic matters that are accumulated and so all that is you know it doesn't make sense from a production standpoint if you don't have to be separating things putting them in vats creating infrastructure for these practices that are maybe not fully necessary maybe there's ways you can go about these things where it's happening and you're actually not doing the work of making it happen so i like to think about setting up the foundation of things so that those processes certainly are occurring but it's not me that's in control I like that answer a lot, Nick. It wasn't the answer that I thought I was going to get out of you, but I, I, you know, you're you're so continually not hype that um, I, I like the fact that you're like, man, I don't I don't need to do all this fermentation stuff in the off season because it's all happening in the soil. It costs money, whether you look at labor and time and and and, and these kinds of things. It costs money to create those systems. You know, we're dealing with a uh, if you really want to make it in a farming uh, business, you really have to. Have have a low overhead and you really have to be efficient in your production and so you know do i want to have a barrel here and do i want to go gather this and and put it in here and stir it and you know it's like ah uh, you know it's too big of a scale to try and do that for everything i think those practices are likely they're they all i don't believe they don't work uh i think they're all very functional i think they're tried and true in a lot of cases and i i, I agree with the foundational principles of gathering indigenous microorganisms and and all and i know about it all but uh, do i practice practice it in physicality as a person in relation nah you know i just see it happening uh all around me and i try to i try to stack my resources into positions where I don't have to be in control of those things. 
Mm-hmm. Well, you know, if a lot of those processes of fermentation are meant to incubate, incubate um, indigenous microorganisms, essentially everything we have talked about today is incubating you know, indigenous local microbes. It's just that you are doing that right there in the soil instead of taking them away from the environment, incubating them and bringing them back. Um, there's no question that you are you are multiplying your local, you know, uh, healthy microbes and bacteria and fungi and all that kind of stuff just through these processes, um, just in a just in a way that's happening <laughs> under a thick layer of wood chip. Yeah, uh, yeah, wood chips, leaves, uh, whatever's laying around. Right on. That's a great explanation, Nick. All right, so let's go ahead and take our second short break and be right back. You are listening to Shaping Fire, and my guest today is regenerative farmer Nicholas Mahmood of Green Source Gardens. Sometimes the topics I want to share with you are far too brief for an entire Shaping Fire episode. In those instances, I post them to Instagram. I invite you to follow my two Instagram profiles and participate online. The Shaping Fire Instagram has follow-up posts to Shaping Fire episodes, growing and processing best practices, product trials, and, of course, gorgeous flower photos. The Shango Los Instagram follows my travels on cannabis garden tours, my successes and failures in my own garden, insights and best practices from personal grows everywhere, and always gorgeous flower photos. On both profiles, the emphasis is on sharing what I've learned in a way that you can replicate it in your own garden, your own hash lab, or for your own cannabinopathic health. So I encourage you to follow at Shaping Fire and at Shango Lose and join our online community on Instagram. As a business owner, you are incredibly busy. In reality, you are responsible for everything your company does. You've got so many responsibilities every single day that often you just don't have the time to really dig into your marketing as deeply as you'd like. You know there's more that you could do to reach out to new customers and encourage loyalty in the customers you already have, but you certainly don't have the time for it and you're not ready to hire somebody full-time for that role either. For you, I recommend Blunt Branding. At Blunt Branding, Kirsten Nelson and her team are focused on improving your bottom line. You know, most marketing firms are excited to make your logo, packaging, and website very pretty, but they leave responsibility for improving your bottom line up to you. They don't want that kind of responsibility, but that's pretty much the most important part of marketing, right? Kirsten and her team will help you engage new customers, funnel them to your point of sale, whether it be online or a storefront, and keep them coming back to you and telling their friends. Now, if you happen to be a new cannabis company or an established company moving from medical to adult use in your state, Kirsten especially can help you. Not only is she well-versed in marketing and finance, but she totally gets cannabis, whole plant medicine, terpenes, heritage farmers, and the particular needs of startups. Check out what she did recently for Moontime Medicinals and Humboldt at MoontimeMedicinals.com. Kirsten and her team put together a whole brand package for them, built their website, and wrote their sales materials. No doubt, this is a paid commercial spot, but that does not mean they bought my opinion. I've worked with Blunt Branding on five projects now for various of their clients, and every single time they have done more than they have promised and over-delivered on results. I love how they generate new revenue and focus on that as the goal instead of just making a pretty logo. Similarly, every 
single friend I've referred them to has come back to thank me. And that just does not happen every day. Grab a pen and paper because the website address is coming up. If you want someone to implement marketing programs that feed your bottom line, give Blunt Branding a call. They will share proven techniques to increase your audience and generate sales while using cutting edge technology solutions in the background that make all of this easy, automatic, and trackable. Go to shapingfire.com forward slash blunt branding to find out more. You can also click the link in our newsletter. Blunt branding, marketing that makes you money. After you've caught up on the latest Shaping Fire episodes, do you sometimes wish there was more cannabis education available to learn? Well, we got you. Shaping Fire has a fabulous YouTube channel with content not found on the podcast. When I attend conventions to speak or moderate panels, I always record them and bring the content home for you to watch. The Shango Los YouTube channel has world-class speakers, including Zoe Sigmund's lecture, Understanding Your Endocannabinoid System, Kevin Jodry of Wonderland Nursery talking about breeding cannabis for the best terpene profile, Frenchie Cannoli's Lost Art of the Hashishan presentation, Nicholas Mahmood on regenerative and polyculture cannabis growing, Dr. Sunil Agarwal on the history of cannabis medicine around the world, Eric Vlosky and Josh Rutherford on solventless extraction, and Jeff Lowenfels on the soil food web. There are several presentations from Dr. Ethan Russo on terpenes and the endocannabinoid system too. While there, be sure to check out the three 10-part Shaping Fire Sessions series, one with Kevin Jodry, one with Dr. Ethan Russo, and one with Jeff Lowenfels. And even my own presentations on how to approach finding your dream job in cannabis and why we choose cannabis business, even though the risks are so high. As of today, there's over 200 videos that you can check out for free. So go to youtube.com forward slash Shango Los or click on the link in the newsletter. Welcome back. You are listening to Shaping Fire. I'm your host, Shango Los, and our guest this week is regenerative farmer Nicholas Mahmood of Green Source Gardens. So here we are. We are back at the springtime. It took us all this good, honest effort over the fall and winter, um, also that we are in the best position we can be on our property for this time when we are uh, pulling the garden together and, and setting it off for the summer. So, Nick, what are you doing um, as uh, you know? As nature is starting to wake up, and there's starting to be buds on trees, and you're starting to see like baby animals and all this kind of stuff early in the year. What are you doing so that um, your garden can be in the best way possible to produce eventual beautiful flowers? Yeah, so you know, springtime is an important time. Um, in and again everybody's climate is going to dictate their practices. And so I really am aiming to work with the climate in the best way possible. And, you know, uh, our manures that are in the barn all winter under uh, preventing from being leached and being gathered continually, um, you know, we feed our animals pretty heavy in the barn space to keep the manures accessible to us so that we can have a big pile to source from. Um, we start putting the manure on the garden in March. But, you know, honestly, everything we do on the farm, because there's, you know, maybe this is a good time to explain, like, how many people are actually working uh for with us and it's not that many so every process that we go down uh my wife uh my brother has been working uh we've got one employee jesse and and uh and then you know the parents but they don't do any labor um and that's it that's our that's our focus and so um you know what we're doing 
never happens that quick, right? So getting the manure on the field only starts in March because I can't do it all at once. And it starts in March and it ends in June. Uh, it really takes months of, of pushing, of gathering the manure into a truck and then moving it up to the space and then wheelbarrowing it out into the, to the space where we want to grow. Um, so now this is a good time to just explain why we wait uh, because I think a lot of people put a lot of manure on their yards in the fall. And I, and, and that again could be a, a fine practice in an area where it freezes hard all winter and everything gets locked up and then doesn't even start its process of breaking down until it warms up in the, in the springtime. But in our climate, it rains and it's wet and it rarely freezes. And so we lose a lot in the winter and that's, that's why the manure is protected all all winter and we wait till the spring um and then and then uh, that manure is also going to be bacterially dominant in its breakdown process and and so we have a fungally supported network that's really rich in fungus up on the hillside from the winter of of wood chips um, and now what we do is we just where we want the cannabis to grow we wheelbarrow loads of manure onto the space and that 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 prevents things from growing there so that we have a clean easy spot to transplant things into but it also balances the bacterial fungal component and and starts to create a much more nutrient rich uh space now uh again we do this all the way to june and and even beyond in some cases depending on when harvest time you know we're trying to always aim for no manure from the barn uh on the space uh if we're within 90 days of a harvest. And that's just good to keep in mind, especially from a commercial perspective, to be adhering to some of the important components that you could be uh, dealing with from a problematic place of, of authority saying you did things wrong, which is kind of annoying. But um, but yes, so, so, you know, the manure starts to get put onto the field slowly and surely into the spaces that we want to transplant into, and, and that's prepping that. Uh, perennials are being divided in, this, in the early spring, and, and so, like, the daisies are going to get uh, broken up, and we're going to expand those if we want to put comfrey uh, into places that are new, we'll go ahead and break up some roots and, and move them around. And, and, uh, yeah, so the, the perennial stuff is just mindful perennial management. Um, and then the most important thing spring is the nursery work. I mean, for us, we depend on a good nursery for transplanting. It's, it's easier for counting, for tagging. We have this you know, legal system that makes us just belligerently uh, over tag everything and and essentially bring a bunch of garbage into the uh, garden. <laughs> but, you know, hopefully they'll stop making us use these metric tags. I swear that metric tags are the biggest amount of garbage I have on our garden. Um, so hopefully that is in, no longer an issue once things are, are mellowed out a little bit on tracking everything because it's kind of ridiculous. Uh, 
but uh, the nursery work is really important. And and you know the we talked about the composting for the potting soil. Well, uh, we didn't mention that uh, that's turned about four or five times in the winter, um, and and also it's added to throughout the process. So like after a bunch of the the cannabis gets trimmed up at the shop, all the stems come back in and they go into the potting soil again. So there's also layers of stems that end up in our potting soil to kind of rejuvenate the exactly what the cannabis plant wants um um and so at that at the springtime in march when we do start our first round in like the second quarter moon cycle in march um what i what i'll do is i'll do a hot compost i'll I'll block off one part of the hoop. I'll come in. I'll I'll layer a bunch and get the heat way up in that compost. I mean, I know that it's losing energy to the atmosphere, but I'm utilizing the compost as a heater, um, and I put the tables over that compost, and that heat is pretty good for a couple weeks. Um, so I know that if I just wait to the very end before I start popping my seeds, and I heap all this stuff in there, and I get that temperature to like 140 or even more i'm i'm make i'm taking advantage of a of a naturally breaking down system to heat uh, the space that i'm growing in we do have some supplemental heat uh, as in involved as well but we try to reduce that as much as possible with this process of creating the heat in the compost we need it for that march round um, and again it's a smaller round and i keep a smaller space heated so it's easier to heat it's less energy intensive um, but april is really the round for big amounts of seeds and uh you know the the nursery is 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 in the hoop house and it's it's double tented and it has some supplemental heat um through through until may um when the the temperatures are are easily warm enough to not need that over uh the nighttime temps uh to maintain a certain level so um so yeah they you know we're planting some rounds again all the soil that we're sourcing is right at our feet uh so the uh filling of pots for transplanting is all right there um you know i'm 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 starting things in flats so i can start hundreds of seeds in a a three foot square uh and then i'm transplanting into four inch until they become established and then i'm transplanting up into two to three gallon pots uh until they sex and so that process usually takes a month and a half to two months if all the growing conditions are adequate for vigorous growth um in that period um so uh, yeah so you know nicholas hold on yeah I, i'm still thinking about your answer to that you you got them you 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 bring them pot up put up put up and into these three gallons and then you put them there until they show sex so yep. what exactly are you saying there are you saying that they're in these three gallons until um you know the the end of july um no, beginning no. of august when they're starting to flower show sex or do you mean that you are uh you are determining sex uh in veg or that you are taking clones and flowering some somewhere else and then using those as your canary of what what sex these particular clones are going to be like to, to break that out a little bit okay first of all we'd never clone so um that eliminates that potential um 
we are sexing in in general most genetics especially when started earlier in the spring uh, will will show a pre-flower at one and a half months to two months if grown if the growing conditions are are good there are some genetics that are super stubborn to show their sex and you know there's an you can have a good eye for sexing plants when they're young it takes a, a trained eye it's it, I've done it for other people I've made mistakes uh, I certainly don't get every single one dialed perfectly but in general, 95% of, of what's going down is pre-sexed in a veg state uh, once it's matured. And so you will see a pre-flower on most genetics uh, given that circumstance. Um, but again, the March round, the earlier stuff you start, we also don't use any light manipulations of any sort. So, you know, you can actually start some genetics in like say March and they will go into flower early and then you can hard prune them as the daylight is lengthening so you can guarantee that it's female it's starting to crown out and wanting to flower and then you do this in, insane cut back to a couple nodes and it stunts it for a minute but when it starts to regrow now the daytime length is long enough to stimulate the veg growth so it regrows into more of a bush-like structure uh, it's a technique that i wouldn't say you should do on everything but it certainly works well for some plants that are uh, tend to go in and out of veg and flower easy some some genetics just will not will not come out of that phase and you'll have a stunted plants for months and you'll just won't you'll be disappointed if you start things too early and they flower too hard early um with that said you know even if i start things in may and they're in full veg some genetics is just so show that pre-flower once they're mature and 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 it's a real easy thing to see uh when you have an eye for it um but you have to know where to look and you have to be having seen it a bunch before um, the other thing with starting plants really early and and again i've done a lot of research and develop like r&d on this with planting lots of seeds at in february and march and april and may and 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 just for everybody's sake of understanding the best time, April is your best shot. April and May, are you're going to have the least amount of problems. If you want to get into learning a bunch of stuff and making some mistakes and having some issues, start your plants in February and March. You're going to have a, a, a big lesson, uh, a lot of lessons you'll learn in that process. But um, but one of those things is is plants will light stress in that confused state and herm uh, even uh, some genetics that are even aren't that prone to herming when you put them in a a a scenario where they don't they're not sure where they're supposed to be they stunt out they're they're stressed and the root growth isn't happening and they might herm um that same plant once it makes itself into veg might not herm at all its whole lifestyle it might these are some things that i you i don't have any concrete like oh this will happen for sure this will happen for sure all i know is sometimes plants will herm if they're stressed early and they won't herm as they finish um oftentimes i just call anything that i see herming uh just because it's not what we want to stimulate we don't want more of that to deal with but i'm telling you some of the best genetics out there will certainly herm if the if the 
if they're confused in a in-between state, like waking up and then trying to flower too early, and, and then the daylight's getting longer and they're confused. They go into this stunted yellowing and everybody thinks it's a nutrient deficient thing. It's just, it's either temperatures or it's just the light cycles just not in a zone where it's understanding what to do. So uh, there's a lot of intricacies within different genetics that need to be understood from personal experience. But if you want to bypass all that learning, you just go straight to April and May, start your seeds, and generally they'll just go right into veg. Um, right on. So I, I'm sure that I am not the only one who heard in all of that that you don't do any cloning on the property. And I would be remiss if I didn't go back to that because <laughs> you know, you're know you clearly a thoughtful guy and you probably have got some interesting stuff to say. So we want to hear it, Nick. <laughs> I don't feel strongly against cloning, um, but I have a goal as a, a farmer or breeder to uh, essentially evolve the plant as far along as it can. And I don't believe uh, maintaining the same plant for years and years is evolving that plant. And um, so I believe in breeding and making seeds every year in order to evolve the plant. And I think that's just a better way to go for advancing the potential. Um, I think cloning is actually hindering the potential by just like getting stuck on one certain thing. And, you know, on, honestly, a lot of people who are are breeding with clone only stuff might not even know how good of a breeding stock that clone that is so what i'm saying there is oftentimes some of the best clones that you find are these poly hybrids that are new crosses of you know this cross to this times this cross to this makes uh, a wide selection of some pretty cool genetics to hunt from. You get this one killer one that has the traits that you want from all of them, and, and now it's this cut-only thing, and then people are seeking that clone to breed with because they think it's the best, but the truth is by breeding to that clone, you're actually going into some really unstable stock, and you're you're actually taking your potential and you're you're diffusing it amongst a bunch of different potential and it gives you another polyhybrid like situation where you have to sort through and where maybe only one of the hundred plants that you see are are the ones you're looking for and and versus uh continually breeding filial generations until the stock is predictable and then utilizing that as breeding stock um I think there's a lot of people do a lot of back crossing in cannabis and, and they generally are holding on to some mother and then they're running a generation and they're picking the best and they're breeding it back to that mother and then they're doing it again and breeding it back to that mother. And so you get the back cross one, back cross two, back cross three. But if that mother is not good breeding stock, which oftentimes it's not because people just don't work their generations very far, you're actually breeding back to an unstable breeding stock. And now you're just continually taking your line and diminishing its potential is how I see it versus taking, say, something that's at like F10 and now using that stock if you're going to be holding on to something in clonal form and, and you hold that to do the back crossing too. Now, I take it a step further. I don't do any back crossing to mother plants. I just do back crossing to the same parental line 
one generation further. So, you know, if I if I put out something that I say is a back cross, um, uh, what I'm saying is this: it's not back cross to the one plant that I kept over winter. I'm saying I'm crossing it back to the parental stock that came from that stock, um, and I'm only doing that. I'm only trying to back cross back to really. St- things that are predictable so i have some kind of idea of what's going to come out in the following uh generation um so these are some things i feel like maybe have been overlooked in the cannabis worlds where people just are like trying to do these cool back crosses but the truth is you keep getting these back crosses that are expressing so much diversity you're like well I thought that was supposed to be narrowing that, uh, and and I think uh, the biggest mistake is you know we're we're back crossing to polyhybrids versus back crossing to worked lines. Um, so that's just a little tangent on that. And and as far as clones go, again, like my main reason for not cloning is just to strengthen the plant. Uh, and 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 I. I grow from seed for the commercial market, so it's in my best interest to create seed that is going to be predictable so that I can put a a row of one variety in and know that all that's going to come down at a relatively the same time so i don't have to stagger the harvest like oh this plant's ready but the plant next to it needs another two weeks but the other one you know it's it's like you're trying to uh, gain predictability in breeding um, so that when you run things from seed, you have an idea of what the outcome is going to be and you can apply the different varieties to the different situations. Now, that being said, uh, if, if you're out hunting for the, the potentially the, you know, you're some new thing, you're going to want to buy some polyhybrids with the genetic stock in the background of the things you like, and then you can hunt that out. Now, if you really want that to be a stable breeding stock, now you have to breed and make selections over the next four or five generations to really hone and, and, and isolate the certain characteristics that you're interested in um, so that when you do breed with that stock, you know that, say, this flower is going to be purple or or that the trichome, the exaggerated trichome development is going to be maintained within this line because the parental stock had been selected for that for, you know, five generations. And at this point, 90% is showing you exactly what you want to see. Uh, that's good breeding stock. But the old, uh, you know, do do cross OG, cross SFV, <laughs> cross uh, gelato mix combination, that's a great pheno hunt, but that is not breeding stock. <laughs> right on. So let's let's go a little further down this path, man, because um, I never really thought about uh, this quite in this way. You know, so many of the commercial uh, cultivators, they are, you know, they're, they're buying seeds for the season around now. They're popping them. They're making some choices. They're they're sexing and then they're they're making clones en masse so that they will be you know ready when it's time to go outside. And the first place that I found that actually just grew everything from seed and then made all their own seeds every year were uh, the dragonfly folks up in Canada, Kelly and Josh. And, and, And when, you know, first time I was sitting down with them in a tent and they were explaining that to me, I'm like, oh my God, that is, I mean, A, it's badass for self sufficiency, right? I really like that part of it. And when you get to the point as you have described where, yeah, you're making your own seeds, but your 
own seeds are of such an advanced um, F generation that they they don't have as many irregularities. You can you can plant ten of them, and you can know what the ten are going to be, you know, pretty much looking like, so that they can all be in the same um, bag for sale. And that yep. they'll be ready to harvest at the same time. And so hearing you describe it, I'm like, my mind is blown again thinking about the additional thought and effort it takes to make all of your own seeds for the season. So um, you've just given us a really great, you know, August to the spring snapshot of what you're doing for the good of the property and the microbes and the watershed. Uh holistically for the farm will you give us a little little conversation about you integrating a seed making process because you know we, we don't have to talk about the basics of making seeds we've talked about that here um a lot and and you know most farms are at least making a little seed to to experiment and and maybe come up with a a house cultivar you know that they can they can sell but when you're doing it at in mass like you are and and you're relying on it for the next season. How does that integrate on your calendar? What are you doing on the calendar to make sure that you have seeds for yourself? Uh, yeah, this is a great question. And and there's a lot to illuminate in this realm. There's a lot that we're all still learning uh, in terms of like how to do this really well. Um, I'm 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 beginning to understand it more as I do it more and more. And and that makes my my uh, seed creation better and better every year because I'm I'm carrying with me last season's learnings uh, and every season compounds on every season um, and so you know some of the really important things that people need to understand um, and and I like to be really vulnerable and let people know where my weaknesses are um, in the process of making seeds you learn a lot about pollen and and there is a certain amount of like pollen contamination that occurs uh and and i'm certainly guilty of of you know having some unexpected pollen hit a place that i don't really want it to and and seeing that maybe in the next generation as i as i start looking at the plants growing however um there are ways to and and this is these are the important learnings uh to uh, maximize your ability to manage a lot of different pollens in a relatively small area and still come out with mostly, uh, you know, 95%. I don't know statistics, really. I, that's just my guess based on what I'm seeing. Um, that it's all going to come out like you want it to. Um, and really, these, these tricks are about how to prevent yourself it's mostly me that is the pollen contaminator. I'm the one collecting the pollen, and I do that separate from the garden. And it's generally inside in my house, just up against the windows. And, and there's up maybe too many plants in one room to be really a scientific lab set type scenario where I can guarantee 100% all this and that. But I'm also like in a position where I want to manage a bunch of different lines to advance those lines to become breeding stock. So it's important for me to be managing males of each variety and many. Um, and, and what that leads to is an understanding of how to prevent yourself from being a pollen contaminator in the field. So when I I go from that room of collecting pollen, which is happening basically from June until August. Um, 
I'm I'm managing males and 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 dealing with pollen. Uh, I go directly from my gathering pollen in the early morning and with some coffee and 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 to the field and working and and that's where I I'm a hairy guy and 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 you know I sniff all the buds all the time and that's you know usually there's a seed on the very top of the bud because my nose was there and I was you know so it's like um but spraying yourself down with a wa- a water bottle a water a spray bottle is a breeder's best friend and 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 then making your seeds in concentrated spots where you know the pollen that you collected is on the branch of that variety and that likely all of those seeds are going to be that you might not know what little seed is on every plant that's drifted and say there's a couple seeds in a bud here and there you can't track that but at least you can track that one branch and so i do a lot of single branch pollinating uh, i use paper bags to collect the pollen i freeze the pollen sometimes when it's early and and letting the pollen go before the flower is ready to be um, uh, pollinated and I'm making selections all over the field but I'm also concentrating certain seed production within a hoop to prevent uh, more pollen contamination and then the hoop just has a layer of plastic that that gives me a little more ability to not end up you know, you're paying attention to wind. You're never pollinating in wind. If you've got at least a barrier between you and the other plants, there's less likelihood. You've got a spray bottle. You're spraying down the area that you just pollinated, and you're you're doing everything you can to minimize pollen drift. Again, I know breeders that are on the coast where it's so humid, they don't even have to worry about pollen drift as much. So the climate is going to dictate that. And dry dry climates and that's we're in dry climate in the fall or summer and fall uh is is where pollen contamination can really be running rampant and that's where the water bottle and the after you collect pollen you you spray yourself down uh everywhere the the water will uh prevent the pollen from one getting airborne but two it also kills the pollen uh eventually if it you know it doesn't kill it if you already pollinated the branch you can spray it and it'll still pollinate because you've already got it on there but um that's something to be really mindful of there's a whole bunch of stuff i could go into depth about when you want to pollinate to get the best seed production uh not waiting too long but trying to find that sweet spot i do all my selections on outdoor plants so oftentimes i end up breeding towards earlier finishing stuff even within different lines so i could take a line that may be finished in mid-october but by the time i'm four generations down I've done the sift. I've chosen to pollinate the ones that have shown resin earlier, and now it's finishing two weeks earlier. So, you know, there's a whole bunch of stuff going on in the breeding realm that's like uh, worthy of exploring with all the different breeders and sharing the information. Because really, what we want to do is not like hold on to this stuff as like some proprietary bullshit that gives is going to make us a bunch of money in the future. But the only thing that's really going to create health and and wellness for everybody in the future is shared information so that we can all be doing a better job of what we're trying to do and that way we can all be more successful um so i don't i don't ever worry about like you know uh do i save this information that i want to tell you uh for some consulting gig i'm going to tell you the same stuff on this podcast that i would if you wanted to pay me for it you know it's like (laughs) um i don't have that uh, entrepreneurial drive to just like find the gem that 
I can just bank a bunch of money off of because I really do believe that real capital is found in the land and in our practices and in the health of the ecology. And so by sharing and, and giving the information freely, it's almost like puts the burden on everybody else to continue to do the same thing and to stop this process of I want to get rich off of what I know um, and and think that, you know, I'm going to, uh, you know, just kind of capitalize on other people's uh, inability to do things, you know, it's kind of so. So, yeah, there's a lot there's a lot in the breeding realm that we all need to be uh, paying attention to. But really, practice is is going to be the the most important thing. Um, right. There's a lot of people that aren't practicing as much as they maybe should be. I've got a, I've got a very specific follow-up question. So yeah. we have been talking about how um, the, 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 the thriving nature of your plants and the abundance of the flowers is primarily based in the fact that they are participating in a complex organism that is your property um, that is, you know, incubated with indigenous microbes, has got, you know, an abundance of local, varied nutrients a lot of it wild crafted a lot of it from your animals so that you know you're, you've created this matrix of life support and because of that your flowers um, do so well how does that play into the seed creation because you know we, we could go down this path uh, and just turning you know turn this whole last set into a breeding set but that's not really the goal since we want to focus more on on you know this the seasonal impacts on your property and how to you know work with that regeneratively what kind of hints might you have to offer us about um making seeds on a farm that is using regenerative practices maybe you can you know give us two or three of those yeah so uh, making seeds you know you can make here's the thing you know, if you have a space that actually is that uh, life support, uh, super resilient, uh, really diverse, you can take what people consider to be the worst pot and grow it and, and get something very good, you know, something way better than what it was when you saw it last. Um, so there's something to be said for just the the really healthy rhizosphere and and heavy mulch buffers the soil rhizosphere to a degree that makes things possible that you wouldn't see elsewhere um therefore uh i believe all cannabis is really good because i see it expressing itself in a really healthy environment and therefore what somebody might assess and say is just low quality weed might actually be high quality weed given the right circumstance in making seeds in this environment it's like any other environment truly it's about selections and so the more plants you have to select from the the better selection process you can have the better the sift um you might it might be called breeders use the term sifting through genetics uh and and so you know really um the biggest i think the biggest mistake that gets made and i've made is is like i just think i know which one is the best and i just put put everything on that and then to come find out at the end of the season it molded uh or molds um 
that's a reality. That's why you can't just only pick the ones you think are the best. I say if you're making seed, go ahead and make seed on a lot of the different plants that you have. Again, not the whole plant, and and this is where the the details are important, but um, just on a branch, just because you don't know how it's going to finish until it finishes. And so I like to think I can make all the best selections, and that's me doing the work. But the truth is I need to stop giving myself so much credit i need to be looking at the plants and and saying they're all super valuable i can't make predictions uh before the end result so i just need to make sure i'm i'm getting some pollen on all of them so that when oh man the one that i thought was wasn't the best turned out to be the best because you cannot pollinate the plant when it's done you know what i'm saying so um you can't make you you can make your predictions, but they're just predictions. They're not set in stone science. You didn't see it finish, so you don't know. So you just – I've just learned you've got to like – you can't just think you know. Um, you have to be really humble in the process and, and just, just stay open to the fact that – you know, you have an ego and your ego oftentimes wants you to believe you have some kind of valuable information more so than other people. But the truth is, that's not the case. And really, the more broader spectrum practices you can have, the more likely you'll realize that you did something that preserved what it is that you really wanted. Um, cause we don't always know. Let's, let's hit that another time, Nick. Cause like you're talking about the, the ego part of this and I got to tell you, you know, listening to some of the, hmm, I don't say this negatively, but I'm going to use the word loose. Listening to some of the more loose breeding practices that you've talked about, you know, you're like, hey, man, I, I, I'm the one who accidentally lets, you know, pollen go on my shirt or on my nose or whatever, or you're, or you're collecting pollen together in your living room and stuff. It's like, like for, for people who are coming to cannabis from a real control place, right? A real ego control place. Um, that sounds like, oh my God. that's such poor manufacturing god knows what's going to come out the other end right but but i know what comes out the other end of your farm right i have i have enjoyed your flowers i've seen lots of different flowers at different times of year i've toured your property i've grown your genetics um i know a lot of people who have who you know flock to your genetics and they rely on them so we know that what comes out is pleasing people and doing their job and being used reliably on other people's farms in the form of seeds, but also it's coming from this environment that you're working in that I would not call hyper-controlled. It is... It's like invitations to nature versus yeah. control. And I know that that's pretty much how you live your life. And I can't be the only one hearing you talk who's having this kind of like internal being torn both directions where it's like, oh my God, his his work all sounds so holistic. I want to smoke that flower and I want to grow those seeds. And at the same time, I've got the part of me going like, oh my gosh, those seeds are not all going to be exactly the same. Speaking a little bit to just how you resolve that for yourself well i i say you know you try out seeds and I, you know it's like uh i'm i've tried a lot of seeds <laughs> and so you know i've seen what's coming down the lines of all these other 
uh, breeders and 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 stuff. And I love it all. And I thank everybody for making seeds. Um, but once you start getting further down the filial generation, and this I can only say it comes from experience. Like again, I like to give myself the uh, let people know the vulnerabilities in the in the places where maybe I'm not as controlled as people want. Um, but the proof is in the pudding, and I'm cracking seeds, and I'm reliably getting what I say is coming from the parental lineage. I can tell. And and again, this is about getting better at it. You know, like, I'm way better at it now than I was four years ago. And so... Uh, by staying open and continuing the process and watching the seeds grow, you can start to really dictate whether your practices are functioning the way that you want them to. And, um, you know, and giving the power over to nature uh, and to those natural processes is always going to strengthen your your stay, your stock. And, um, and, and I, w- I would say just like you can buy or you can – acquire seeds uh for from a bunch of different people and just grow them out and just ask yourself what looks similar what doesn't um you know truly if you cross something that's dank to something that's dank you're gonna get dank and it might not all be the same dank but it's dank you know so it's like that's where i started when i began the process but now i'm like oh f1 stock is so good when you're working with breeding stock on both parental lines that it's worth making sure that you continue the filial generations on the lines with the traits that you're looking for so that you can make those f1s later for people who are in production because really the f1 stock is for commercial production this is where we have like if you're a, a commercial producer and you want to grow things from seed, you you want to be looking for that F1 stock that is real F1 stock. That means both parental lines have been worked for years and years and are coming out at least predictable. And then when they mesh together, they actually come out really uniform with some traits from both sides. And the hybrid vigor, the heteros heterozygosity is way higher so you're getting yields you're getting terpene results that are way more complex um it really is where the best weed is going to come out of is these uh f1 crosses and you know when you're working lines down generations and generations you might actually even see the overall return like become less and maybe the percentages even become less but that doesn't mean it's going to make something that's not good. That That's the piece that's kind of confusing is as I take some things into the F6 generation, they're testing lower than they ever have, but their offspring are combining so well with the others that it shoots the numbers up in all the categories. So, you know, it's 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 a game that that we're all playing and and everybody gets so uh demoralized when their test result maybe comes back lower than they want but hey if you understand that those test results can come back lower and you don't have to grow that one for commercial production but if you use that one in making a cross with another one that is inbred and maybe doing the same thing the result doesn't mean a low percentage in that case it I'm finding low percentage inbred lines combined together make the highest percentage outcome, um, which is, you know, I look at a lot of COAs and I'm, you know, because I 
have to get tests for every lot that goes into the market and all this stuff. I'm getting a good idea of the overall background genetics and each lineage and and i'm able to kind of run with that and then look at like when i take a terpinaline variety and i put it on the myrcene variety do i see both terpinaline and myrcene or do i see one just kind of eat out the other and the case is is when there those lines are inbred i'm seeing both of the parental uh, terpene profiles combining into the offspring. I'm seeing the THC levels increase and on the offspring uh, 10% higher than either parent. Uh, so, you know, there's a lot of things that I, I'm just not willing to say we know yet uh, because I, I just need to continue down the process of R&D, growing these seeds every year, making my selections, growing those seeds, looking at the tests, you know, it's, it's, and there's, there's flaws in everybody's breeding program. And it's important for us to recognize the flaws so that we can work on them. And that's really where we gain strength is when we see our weaknesses, we work on those weaknesses, we see our strengths, and we understand our strengths. And we, we move forward uh, with that holistic kind of approach of like knowing we have more, more to learn. And that, we're not just all the best breeders in the world. Um, I want to finish with this today, Nick. So I've been to your property and a lot of your examples you're able to do on your property because you've been doing this year over year for a lot of years. You've put a lot of labor and love and calendar into your property. And a lot of folks who are listening today, um, you know, either, either maybe they're, they've got a new farm or they're converting their farm from, from traditional agriculture, you know, traditional industrial era agriculture practices to becoming more regenerative, or maybe, you know, it's a farm that's trying to convert themselves, right. To get, you know, a, a quality, um, you know, regenerative certification, like the, 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 you know, the Dem Pure certification or something like that. So you've got a lot of people who, who have got an ideal that they share with you, but they, they're at the beginning of the game. Whereas, you know, you're, you're, you know, many years into this game. Um, what words of reassurance do you have for folks that um, that they should go along this path, even though the, the labor and the amount of time that it's going to take to get there seems so long when you're, when you're, when you're teaching, you're, you know, you don't really teach as much growing cannabis, right? You teach biological systems and that takes some time. So, so, so we'll finish off here by I'll, I'll, I'll give you the mic and I'll say what what message do you have for these folks who are at the beginning of this path? Oh man, um, well, first and foremost, you have to love this plant. Like I've been obsessed a little bit with cannabis ever since I started integrating my experiences in nature uh, with being affected by this cannabis plant so you know most of the people that are trying to go down this route if they're if they're into it for the money i can say you're gonna fail if you're into it because your passion is there i say don't get too caught up in uh uh you know trying to make a ton of money off of it just get stay focused on the passionate piece but also like if you're into breeding if, if somebody would have told me, uh, hey, 
like just even even six years ago uh just hey you're gonna want to pay attention to uh, keeping your lines as pure as you can so it doesn't matter if you get a polyhybrid to start with but just keep working those filial generations until you see something uh, coming out uh, more uniform. That's kind of the most important work. And especially from an outdoor, uh, I grow one crop a year. I don't do indoor. I'm not running multiple seasons through the year and and advancing populations very quickly. Um, I want to see the F10 generation, but I've got to wait four more years, you know? So like if you, if you're starting and you really are passionate and you really want to be developing something that is, is, is something you've really helped steward and shepherd and, and can be feeling really good about is that you start the process of of gathering what you want and keeping those lines in those lines for a while before you start mixing them. Because what inevitably happens, and this is speaking to breeders again, like if it's, it's all, it's all different based on your goals and outcomes, but I'm really like weighed towards breeders because I'm really passionate about it. Um, is that it, it, it's like, don't get too wrapped up in like making a, like crossing everything because there's something so dank over here and there's something so dank over here that you just know that those are the two best. And if you put those two together and the male pollen, you only have one male that you've selected for all of your crosses. It's like, that's just narrowing your potential and potentially taking you down a path. You don't want to be keep your lines going in their own directions before you start crossing them and if you can acquire some inbred lines uh that's the way you want to go you want to buy inbred lines something that somebody's worked for a while you can take it and continue the work um in a different direction within that line um because there's always a spectrum of what's going to express uh within a certain line of cannabis we we don't hone every single trait we might hone a couple of traits that we know are going to pass on but in the long run there's all kinds of there's there's flower morphology there's plant structure there's leaf type there's all these different traits that you know might get bypassed and and look to for only the resin and flower um and so there's always a little bit of a there's always a spectrum to choose from even from a worked line but to keep those lines continually worked and then start crossing those lines later uh, and you'll have a much better result is my belief. Um, and I wish somebody had told me that, you know, a long time ago, I just had to like realize that in my journey, um, of just studying really, it's been about studying, uh, crops outside of cannabis, um, and how breeding occurs in those crops. And then taking some of those, uh, scientific learnings from the world of agriculture and applying them to the cannabis. It's really, it's just a plant is a plant and they're all different, but but some of the breeding practices can certainly um, result in similar end results. Like if you want to grow for outdoor production, you do want real F1 stock. You don't really want to be hitting the IBLs on that. So I'm going to ask you the same question, but with a different emphasis, right? Okay. So, yeah. so you know, you won regenerative gardening awards, and you've, you know, a lot of people look up to you and how that you have developed this property. And for people who may not be breeders, but they're on a new property, right? They don't, they don't have any hugel cultures. They're just building their first berms. They're trying to figure out what's in the forest around them, and it all seems like so much, right? Because it yeah. is. It can be so much. 
much. Um, what what words of inspiration do you have for people who may not be breeders? Heck, they might not even be growing cannabis, right? This is you yeah. know the, the kind of show we've had today. We haven't actually used the word cannabis all that much. It works for cannabis, but it's also going to work for for food crops as well. Yep. Yep. And so so what what kind of like final parting shots or or, or inspiration do you have for folks who are looking to grow in their biological system and they're feeling like, oh my God, this is going to take the rest of my life? That's a great question. Um, and and I, I really like to address this one in in this way that, again, it, it it's probably not what people are expecting me to say. Um, but the truth is, is if you're going to connect with your landscape, you have to take time to connect with it. And so stop all the research and looking for the answers online and looking for the answers through people like me and looking for answers from anything but your land and start the process of of slowing down and and taking time to spend in the spaces that you want to cultivate and asking the land uh you know it's not like you go out there and physically make a loud noise that is asking a question but you go out there and you listen and you observe and and you pay attention, you take time. It's not even like, oh, land, what can I do to grow, you know, really awesome things? It's more like, what is this land? What is, what are we? And and meditate on some of the deeper things so that you could start to pierce the veils that have been put in front of our our realities um, and start to really hone in on this idea of humans are here and can have really healthy, positive impact on landscape. What is healthy? What is uh, what is gonna really make this place thrive? And and so it's really a deeper internal. Uh, uh, deprogramming and 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 smoke weed when you do it (laughs) i i I guarantee if you you know uh utilize cannabis in in the natural setting with the right intentions um it really helps guide you into the aha moments that are much less likely to come across uh watching a youtube video on some regenerative farms you know it's like um spend your time in nature if you want to connect with nature and be uh, a voice for nature you have to live there to 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 have that understanding otherwise you're just trying to find the answer and and the answers are not concrete um they are way more philosophical than we want them to be this is not a measure your input and and if you put this down it will work it's more like you have to do the work with the with the world you want to live in and and it doesn't always look like the work you want to do but oftentimes it starts from your within and it starts with how you interpret what you see and so if you're already down the path and you really want to do good you really have to start exploring well what do i think is doing good and how is that maybe not so good and what are the cultural uh problems with this you know, colonial uh, consumer capitalist society that is all about uh, killing life and and monoculture, creating monocultures. Um, 
we have to understand we've been super, super affected by that culture, and we're still in that culture, and our thought processes are, are kind of geared towards that culture. So when we start getting into the periphery zone of, of making advancements into the potential of our ability to steward land, it starts to look like we're anti the culture. And in some ways, it feels like a path that is very outside the norm and very feels like everybody is just uh, on a journey that's just destroying the planet. And we really, you know, we really have to connect with nature again in order to actually realize how we can help uh, the process of nature and uh, even understand what a healthy ecology is. So, When we were preparing for this show, Nick, um, you said this one thing that struck me, and I put it in my notes. You told me, you don't grow good cannabis by focusing on the cannabis. You grow good cannabis by being a good steward of all the biological systems surrounding the cannabis. And I think that's a recurring theme that goes throughout this show is that, you know, if you're taking care of the entire living matrix around your garden, that that can only benefit your plants. And it's probably going to benefit them more than the rest of the crap you're doing. Exactly. And it's going to benefit everybody and everything on the planet. Uh, at this stage, you know, any kind of work we can do towards taking care of our ecology is work that is worth doing at this point. Right on. Well, Nick, thank you so much for taking the time to be with us, especially at this early morning time. We're on farmer's hours today. And uh, so thank you for taking time away from the garden and your family for this. And thank you for sharing your vast experience. And and most of our thank for sharing your heart. You know, there's there's a lot of people who can who talk about these same topics in a pretty dry, functional way. But um, but, you know, your your passion and compassion for nature uh, really comes through. And I, I appreciate that in you. Well, I appreciate that. And I just want to give a special shout out to my wonderful family and my little boy and my wife for all the support, um, because truly this isn't this wouldn't be what it is uh, without them. And, and my whole world has shifted in this last year with this new little one. And and, you know, my my desire to continue the process of caring for the ecology is strengthened even more by having um, a little one. And so, um, yeah, uh, just big love to the whole family, my brother, my parents, uh, my wife, especially. Um, so, yeah. Fantastic. Right on. So if you haven't enjoyed this conversation and you want to know more about Green Source Gardens, here's the places to do it. First of all, you really do want to follow their Instagram at Green Source Gardens. Um, it's filled with uh, delightful photos and a bunch of technique stuff. And you really want to go if for no other reason is you want to see pictures of the Pinkleberry. The uh, Pinkleberry is a cultivar that comes from Green Source, which... Um, it's just a delight to check out. It's really great to smoke, too. But the pictures are astonishing. So make sure you go check out them on Instagram at Green Source Gardens. Um, you can also check out their website at greensourcegardens.org. There's some inf- good information there, um, especially if you know, you're know you in the uh, Oregon commercial realm and you might want to reach out to them to uh, carry um, Green Source Gardens products in your store. Um, but then also on the Green 
greensourcegardens.org website, you can also find the Greensource Gardens seasonal podcast uh, from the farm. It comes around, you know, let's say, you know, quarterly-ish, seasonally-ish. Um, but there's a lot of down-home information. It's just an enjoyable listen. So uh, you can uh, find that as well on the website greensourcegardens.org. You can find more episodes of the Shaping Fire podcast and subscribe to the show at shapingfire.com and wherever you get your podcasts. If you enjoyed the show, we'd really appreciate it if you would leave a positive review of the podcast wherever you download. Your review will help others find the show so they can enjoy it too. On the Shaping Fire website, you can also subscribe to the newsletter for insights into the latest cannabis news, exclusive videos, and giveaways. On the Shaping Fire website, you also find transcripts of today's podcast as well. Be sure to follow on Instagram for all original content not found on the podcast. That's at Shaping Fire and at Shango Los on Instagram. Be sure to check out the Shaping Fire YouTube channel for exclusive interviews, farm tours, and cannabis lectures. Does your company want to reach our national audience of cannabis enthusiasts? Email hotspot at shapingfire.com to find out how. Thanks for listening to Shaping Fire. I've been your host, Shango Los.